millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey friends, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is the weekly highlight reel of videos that I have put out on YouTube. So in case you don't know, you can go over to YouTube and watch all of my videos. The channel is History and Coffee, and you can just search for my name as well, Heather Tesco, History and Coffee, and you will get it. And you can subscribe there. Thank you to the many people who already subscribe. And then what I've started doing is weekly highlight reels of some of the videos that have gone out on YouTube that would be of interest to the podcast listeners as well. So thanks for listening. And you can also, like I said, go over and join me on YouTube, History and Coffee, and search for Heather. And there I am. So let's get right into it. So today we are talking about Maria de Salinas, Baroness Willoughby de Erzby. She was a notable figure in the Tudor court. She was the mother of Catherine Willoughby, who is, you know, quite famous. And she was at the time primarily recognized for her very close association with Catherine of Aragon, of course, Henry VIII's first wife. So Maria de Salinas was born around 1490 in Spain, and her life journey from the Iberian Peninsula to the bustling courts of England paints a vivid picture of a noblewoman navigating the complex political and social landscapes of early 16th century Europe. As a lady-in-waiting, she was more than just a companion. She was a confidant and a loyal supporter of Catherine. She stood by her side through all of the tumultuous period, including Catherine's marriage to Arthur Tudor, and then the period where she did not have a husband and she was just kind of waiting to see what was going to happen to her, and then throughout her whole marriage to Henry VIII. Her role extended beyond just court duties and reflected the intricate interplay of personal loyalties and political intrigue that characterized the Tudor period. Maria de Salinas was born into a world where lineage and noble connections dictated one's place in society. She was the daughter of Martín de Salinas, a member of the royal household of Castile, and Josefa González de Salas. This prestigious background placed Maria within the sphere of the Spanish royal family. 
potentially even a distant relation, though the exact nature of the connection is a subject of historical conjecture. Growing up in Spain, the Spain of the Reconquista, she was exposed to court life from a young age. She was exposed to lots of different cultures, uh, warfare. She would have had this upbringing that prepared her for her future role in the English court, and her family's status would have provided her with an education befitting a noblewoman, lessons in etiquette, languages, the arts, crafting her into a sophisticated and cultured member of the aristocracy. Her transition from Spain to England was a journey marked by significant political and cultural shifts. It's believed that she accompanied Catherine of Aragon, the Spanish princess, to England in 1501. This move was not just a personal journey for Maria, but part of a grander political narrative involving these two powerful nations. Well, one, Spain was at the peak of its power, or close to the peak, and then England was you know, coming out of the Wars of the Roses and trying to form these alliances that would give legitimacy to the Tudors. Catherine of Aragon's marriage to Prince Arthur, Prince of Wales, was a union meant to solidify the alliance between England and Spain, and Maria's presence in Catherine's entourage signified her family's importance in the Spanish court and their role in supporting this pivotal and diplomatic marriage. Her arrival in England introduced her to a new realm, a new language, new customs, new climate, challenging her to adapt to the Tudor court's unique dynamics. This transition marked the beginning of Maria's significant role in the Tudor period, intertwining her life with the fate of Catherine of Aragon and the unfolding history of England. In the English court, Maria de Salinas's role as a lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon was multifaceted, would have encompassed duties that ranged from personal assistance to acting as a confidant and advisor. She also would have been uh, like a link back to her Spanish culture, something that was familiar, someone that Catherine could speak to in her own language. Even when the rest of Catherine's initial larger entourage would have left to go back to Spain, her responsibilities likely included overseeing Catherine's daily schedule, managing her correspondence, providing companionship. Maria's position allowed her unique insights into the Queen's personal and political life, especially during Catherine's marriage to Henry VIII. Maria's unwavering loyalty to Catherine was most evident during the Queen's most challenging times, particularly when Henry VIII was trying to annul their marriage. Despite the court's shifting allegiances, Maria remained steadfast in her support, often at personal risk. This loyalty was not just a demonstration of duty, but also a testament to the deep bond that they shared. They'd been together for 25 years at this point, reflecting the profound emotional support systems that existed within the female spheres of Tudor courts. Her devotion to Catherine was such that even when ordered to leave the Queen's service during the annulment crisis, Maria sought ways to maintain contact and provide support, highlighting the depth of their relationship beyond mere courtly duty. On June 5, 1516, Maria married William Willoughby, the 11th Baron Willoughby de Ersby, a union that significantly elevated her status in English nobility. The marriage brought her into one of England's most influential families and granted her a prominent position within the English aristocracy. The couple resided at Grimsthorpe Castle in Lincolnshire, a magnificent estate that became a symbol of their wealth and status. Her life at Grimsthorpe was marked by the responsibilities of managing a large household and estate, roles that required astute administrative skills. Her marriage also intertwined her life further with the English nobility, fostering relationships that extended her influence beyond the court. 
She and William had one child, Catherine, who later inherited Barony, became, of course, Catherine Willoughby, who married Charles Brandon. Their life at Grimsthorpe was filled with the typical activities of the nobility, including hosting events, managing lands, and participating in local and national politics. Maria's role as Baroness Willoughby de Airsby thus expanded her influence from the intimate circles of the Queen's Chambers to the broader stage of the English Noble Society, showcasing her adaptability and resilience in navigating the complexities of Tudor England. Maria's involvement within the Tudor politics, though often behind the scenes, was significant because of her close relationship with Catherine of Aragon. Her position as lady-in-waiting provided her with a unique access to the inner workings of the Tudor court, allowing her to witness and at times influence key political events. Maria interacted with influential figures of the time, including Henry and members of his court. Her influence was subtly exercised, often through her counsel to Catherine and her ability to navigate court politics. Maria's political role was particularly evident in her interactions with ambassadors and dignitaries where she often represented Catherine's interests. Additionally, her Spanish heritage and connection to the Castilian court provided her with a unique perspective, which she could leverage in discussions and negotiations. Despite being a woman in a male-dominated political landscape, Maria's proximity to the queen and her understanding of the court dynamics enabled her to play a discreet yet impactful role in the Tudor political arena. The later years of Catherine of Aragon were marked by her tumultuous annulment from Henry, and during this period, Maria de Salinas's loyalty and support for Catherine were unwavering. As Catherine faced isolation, public humiliation, and the annulment of her marriage, Maria stood by her side, offering emotional and moral support, even when it could have perhaps been a threat to Maria herself. It would have tested her resilience and loyalty. Supporting Catherine could have potentially jeopardized her own standing at court. But Maria was a staunch ally. Her devotion was most notably demonstrated in 1536 when Catherine was confined to Kimbleton Castle. When she heard about Catherine's failing health as she was dying, Maria defied the king's orders and made a daring journey to be at her side. This act of loyalty, in the face of considerable personal risk, underscored the depth of her commitment to Catherine. Her presence during Catherine's final days, where supposedly she died in Maria's arms, was a poignant testament to their enduring friendship and the strength of their bond. Maria's actions during this period highlight not only her personal courage, but also the profound impact she had during one of the most critical moments in Tudor history. Following the death of Catherine, Maria de Salinas's life entered a new phase marked by a focus on her family and estate management. She was now a widow herself. She had lost her husband, William, in 1526. And actually, this goes to show even more how strong she was during this period when she defied the king because she did not have the protection of her husband to help her. She took on the full responsibility of managing the substantial Willoughby estates, including Grimsthorpe Castle. Her role as a landowner and manager showcased her capabilities beyond the court as she adeptly handled the complexities of estate administration in a period when such responsibilities were typically male-dominated. Her later years were also characterized by her dedication to her daughter, Catherine Willoughby, who had become an important figure in her own right when she married Charles Brandon and she became Duchess of Suffolk. Maria guided and supported her daughter through these significant life events. Um, when she married Charles Brandon, who was, of course, like the second most influential man in the kingdom, right below Henry, despite the political and religious upheavals at the time, including the Reformation and the Lincolnshire Rising, Maria successfully navigated these challenges 
maintaining control of her estates and ensuring their transition to her daughter. She died in 1539, so only a couple of years after the death of Catherine of Aragon. So she really didn't have that long without Catherine of Aragon. Um, and of course, then her daughter, Catherine Willoughby, went on to become a lady-in-waiting to Catherine Parr and continue that tradition. So there we go. A little bit about Maria de Salinas. We are going to be talking about Helena Snuckenborg, who was a lady-in-waiting to Elizabeth I. She actually came over with the Swedish princess Cecilia Vasa, who I did a whole podcast episode on several weeks ago. So I will link to that in the show notes for you to listen fully. Um, she's a fascinating woman who became you know, part of the inner circle for Elizabeth I. So let's get right into it. In the annals of Elizabethan England, few figures captivate the imagination like Helena Snockenborg, Marchioness of Northampton. Born in Sweden in the mid-16th century, Helena's life reads like a tapestry woven with threads of intrigue, romance, and political savvy. This video, we're going to talk about the remarkable journey of Helena from her early life in Sweden to becoming a prominent figure at the court of Elizabeth I. As lady-in-waiting to one of history's most iconic monarchs, Helena not only witnessed but also played a major role in the grandeur and machinations of the Elizabethan era. Her story is a fascinating exploration of cross-cultural interactions, personal ambition, and the intricate social dynamics of the English royal court. Helena's story begins in the province of Ostrogothia, Sweden, where she was born as Elin Ulfsdotter into the noble Bat and Lily of Ökna families. So I probably just butchered that. Apologies to my Swedish listeners. Her early life in Sweden was marked by a privileged upbringing grounded in the traditions and politics of Swedish nobility. Her father was a supporter of King Gustav I of Sweden, and he ensured that his daughter was well-educated and prepared for life befitting her status. The turning point in Helena's life came with her involvement in the retinue of Princess Cecilia Vasa of Sweden. In the autumn of 1564, Helena, along with five other Swedish noblewomen, embarked on an arduous journey to England. This voyage was actually intended to strengthen diplomatic ties, and possibly Cecilia was going to kind of speak on behalf of her brother, who was courting Elizabeth I, so kind of going back and forth on the idea of a royal marriage between Elizabeth I and Cecilia's half-brother, King Eric of Sweden. And this journey was fraught with challenges. The hostility between Denmark, Norway, and Sweden forced them to take a lengthy and perilous land route through Finland, Livonia, Poland, and Germany. Upon their arrival in Dover in September 1565, Helena and her retinue were greeted by the English nobility, including the influential Sir William Parr, Marquess of Northampton. This marked Helena's first foray into English society, a world vastly different than her native Sweden. Her transition from a Swedish noblewoman to a figure of significance in the English court began here laying the foundation for her future as a respected lady-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth and a marchioness. Helena would have been spending this time that Cecilia was visiting as part of the retinue, and the primary objective did not actually materialize. You can listen to my episode on Cecilia for all the details about that visit. But 
It was successful in terms of diplomacy and cultural exchange. There were a lot of festivities. There were a lot of receptions illustrating the cordial relations between England and Sweden. Cecilia decided to return to Sweden in 1566. She had run up a lot of debts. It was time to go home. But Helena was still intrigued by life at the English court, and she was drawn to the opportunities that it presented, and she chose to stay behind. Her decision was influenced by her growing attachment to England and the prospects of a more advantageous position at court. Her charm and intelligence soon caught the attention of Elizabeth I, leading to her appointment as a lady-in-waiting. This not only elevated Helena's status, but also placed her in close proximity to the queen, allowing her to establish herself as a significant figure in the Elizabethan court. She was a gentlewoman who was responsible for overseeing many of the private aspects of the queen's life, which required utmost trust and loyalty. Her relationship with Elizabeth was one of mutual respect, and some accounts suggest a lot of personal fondness. Her loyalty and service to the queen did not go unnoticed. She was often entrusted with significant responsibilities and privileges. Besides her interactions with the queen, Helena also established connections with other prominent figures at court, navigating the complex web of alliances and rivalries that characterized the Elizabethan era. The most significant turn in her life at the Elizabethan court came with her courtship and eventual marriage to William Parr, Marquess of Northampton. He was, of course, also Catherine Parr's brother. He was impressed by Helena's charm and intellect, pursued her ardently. However, their path to matrimony was not without obstacles. Parr was previously married and then divorced. And he faced the challenge of the Church of England's stance on remarriage, which did not permit a subsequent marriage when the previous spouse was still alive. She did marry William Parr in May of 1571, and that was a milestone that elevated her status significantly. The ceremony was actually held in the presence of Elizabeth I. It was a testament to the Queen's approval and Helena's esteemed position at court. As the Marchioness of Northampton, Helena enjoyed a life of luxury and influence. She divided her time between the couple's residences in Guildford and Surrey and Stansted Hall in Essex, participating actively in the social and political life of the nobility. Tragically, their marriage was incredibly short-lived. William Parr passed away in October of 1571, after only five months, leaving Helena a widow. Despite the brief duration of their marriage, she gained a substantial dower and maintained the title of Marchioness for the rest of her life. She was thrust into widowhood and faced not only the personal grief of losing her husband, but also the challenge of maintaining her status and influence at court. And then, five years later, around 1576, her life took another dramatic turn with a secret marriage, which is never a good thing when it comes to Elizabeth I, lady-in-waitings, to a Thomas Gorges. He was a courtier and groom of the chamber, and a distant relative of Elizabeth, being a second cousin of Anne Boleyn. This clandestine union initially led to a scandal at court, resulting in Helena's temporary exclusion and Gorges's brief imprisonment. Their marriage was seen as a breach of court protocol, especially given Helena's elevated status as a marchioness, and it challenged the social norms and expectations of Elizabethan England. Despite these initial setbacks, Helena's marriage to Gorges proved to be both fruitful and significant. They had eight children, and their family life was marked by both affection and ambition. It seems like it was a love match, so yay for them. They resided at their London townhouse at Whitefriars, 
and later at Longford Castle in Wiltshire. The reconstruction of Longford Castle, which had been damaged by fire before Gorges had acquired it, became a symbol of their status and their wealth. Completed under the supervision of the architect John Thorpe, the castle was a testament to their restored favor and success. There is actually a letter that still survives that was written by Helena to Thomas Radcliffe, the Earl of Sussex. And it's written during the fallout of the secret marriage to Thomas Gorges. And it's a fascinating artifact that demonstrates her mastery of Elizabethan letter writing conventions and her strategic thinking. In her letter, she eloquently articulated her plight, combining emotional appeal with a well-structured argument. She skillfully employed the rhetoric of supplication, a common practice in seeking favor or redress in Elizabethan court politics. The letter's tone was one of humility and deference, yet it cleverly underscored her plight and the injustice of the situation. This balance between emotion and decorum highlights Helena's understanding of the nuanced dynamics of courtly communication and influence. And remember, she was Swedish. She hadn't even, she'd been living in England for a decade and a little bit at this point. So um, pretty amazing. I lived for seven years in a foreign country and I never got to the point where I would have been able to to do something like that. So it just goes to show how adaptable she was uh, and how strategic she could think. The content of the letter reflected her immediate need to regain Queen Elizabeth's favor following her secret marriage, and it appealed to Sussex's sense of duty and honor, urging him to intercede on her behalf. Remarkably, her strategic appeal was successful. She was eventually reinstated at court, a clear indication that her persuasive skills and the respect she commanded among the nobility were working. It not only underscored her resilience, but also her astute understanding of the politics and social etiquettes of her adopted country. The life of Helena Snockenborg, Marchioness of Northampton, is a remarkable tale of resilience, adaptability, and astuteness in the face of the complexities of Elizabethan England. From her beginnings as a young Swedish noblewoman to becoming a pivotal figure in the court of Elizabeth I, her journey is emblematic of the era's intricate social and political landscape. Her marriage to Thomas Gorges, though initially scandalous, ultimately exemplified her ability to navigate and influence the highest circles of English society. Today, we are doing a Tudor portrait and propaganda episode. We're looking at the sieve portrait of Elizabeth I. There's actually a couple portraits where Elizabeth's holding a sieve. So in this video, we are going to look at the George Gower one. It is in the Folger Shakespeare Library today. We'll talk about the provenance. This portrait is a masterpiece of Renaissance art, a testament to the intricate interplay of symbolism, politics, and personal image during Elizabeth I's reign. Let's explore the layers of meaning in this painting, the artistic genius behind it, and its role in shaping the legacy of one of England's most iconic monarchs. At the heart of this portrait lies the sieve, an object rich in allegorical significance. Its connection to the Roman Vestal Virgin Tuccia is a clever nod to Elizabeth's self-styled image as the Virgin Queen. Also, I just have to say, here's another example of Elizabethans bringing up Rome in their portraits. We did that video the other day of how the Tudors and Elizabethans saw the Roman Empire, how often they thought about the Roman Empire. Here is yet one more example. So the priestesses of Vesta, the Vestal Virgins, were the Roman goddesses of the hearth. They were required to remain chaste. 
When the priestess Tuccia was accused of breaking this requirement, she apparently proved her virginity by carrying water in a sieve without spilling a drop. Not sure how that works, but it apparently proved her virginity. And so that is an imagery that people looking at this portrait would have been familiar with. By aligning herself with Tuccia, Elizabeth cleverly sidestepped the traditional expectations of marriage and succession, of course, asserting her independence and her authority as a ruler in her own right. Some historians say that the queen specifically intended the association with Tuccia with herself because of rumors going around of her unchastity. This was, you know, a decade after Amy Robsart had died, over a decade after Amy Robsart had died. It's also a year after Dudley had married someone else. But, you know, there were rumors persisting with all of these paramours that Elizabeth had. And I, I think I did a video a couple months ago on all of the different men that courted Elizabeth. So she wanted to have that sieve as, you know, an association that she actually was quite chaste. Also, there's an inscription on the rim of the sieve, which is a nod to the queen's discernment. Of course, the sieve separates out the good from the bad. So this is saying that Elizabeth is able to discern the good from the bad in her country and ensure that, of course, only the good reaches her country. There is a globe depicted behind the queen. This isn't just a backdrop. It's a powerful symbol of the era's spirit of exploration and conquest. The inscription, tutto vero e molto mancha. Wait, let me try that again and pretend I have an espresso and I'm sitting at a, at a cafe in Florence or something. Let's, let's try this again. Tutto vero e molto mancha. Okay, somebody's going to just totally blast that. But anyway, I had fun with it. All right, this inscription, I want to say it again, but I'm not going to subject you to that, highlights Elizabeth's global awareness and ambition, and it speaks volumes about the Queen's vision for England's role on the world stage. It subtly communicates her intentions to expand her realm and influence, reflecting the burgeoning spirit of the Elizabethan age. George Gower's artistic prowess is evident in every brushstroke of this portrait. His ability to blend realism with idealization creates an image of Elizabeth that is both authentic and larger than life. The influence of the Darnley portrait is apparent in the Queen's posture and attire, yet Gower's rendition is unique in its integration of symbolism and detail. The opulent dress, adorned with gold and silver, and the elaborate headdress, are not just fashion statements, but visual assertions of royal power and wealth. This portrait was painted during a significant period in Elizabeth's reign. She was about 46 years old. She was firmly established on the throne, yet her most iconic moments were still to come. So we still have the Armada to come, which is one of the most famous, of course, episodes in Elizabeth's life. We're also still about eight years away from the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. By 1579, she still had not had those iconic kind of pivotal moments yet. So the Civ portrait captures a moment of transition from a queen consolidating her power to one who would become a legendary figure in British history. In Tudor England, portraiture was a powerful medium for propaganda. Every element in this painting, from the placement of the royal coat of arms to the Latin and Italian inscriptions, 
was meticulously chosen to convey specific messages about the queen's virtue, wisdom, and divine right to rule. This portrait is a masterclass in visual rhetoric, using symbolism and allegory to reinforce Elizabeth's image as a monarch of unparalleled wisdom and virtue. The journey of the Civ portrait to the Folger Shakespeare Library is a tale in and of itself. It was acquired by George Arthur Plimpton, later bequeathed to the library. This painting not only reflects the tastes and interests of its collectors, but also the changing perceptions of Elizabeth over the centuries. George Arthur Plimpton had acquired the painting by around 1930, and then his son, Francis Plimpton, inherited it when George died in 1936. And then it was the younger Plimpton who bequeathed the work to the Folger Shakespeare Library. The artist, George Gower, was born in Yorkshire around 1540 and died around 1596 in London. By 1573, he was working in London. He was working as a portrait painter. And he painted people like Sir Thomas Kitson and his wife Elizabeth, both in 1573, and then Elizabeth Knowles in 1576. In 1571, he was actually appointed Elizabeth Sergeant Painter for life. So after that, George Gower and Nicholas Hilliard tried to streamline production of images of Elizabeth so that their production was exclusive to just Hilliard and Gower. And sadly for Gower, this attempt failed. No images of the Queen credited to Gower during his lifetime exist anymore. The attribution for this painting was actually done by art historians by Roy Strong based on the stylistic grounds. So there you have it, a deep dive into the 1579 Civ portrait of Elizabeth I. Not just a painting, it's a historical document that offers invaluable insights into the art, politics, and culture of the Elizabethan era. As we unravel its layers, we gain deeper understanding of how Elizabeth skillfully crafted her image and how artists like George Gower played a crucial role in immortalizing her legacy. Thanks so much for listening to this week's YouTube highlights. Remember, you can go over and subscribe. History and Coffee, Heather Tesco, you will find me there. And we'll be back again next week with more highlights from what went out on YouTube throughout the week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Blow northern wind, a sandful baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.